reading an excerpt from an editorial written by Ismael Setter-Geldon, who is the director of the Library of Alexandria in Alexandria, Egypt. He says in Science, the journal Science, Science requires the freedom to inquire, to challenge, to think, to imagine the unimagined. It cannot function within the arbitrary limits of convention, nor can it flourish if it is forced to shy away from challenging the accepted. Science advances by overthrowing an existing paradigm, or at least substantially expanding or modifying it. Thus, there is a certain constructive subversiveness built into the scientific enterprise as a new generation of scientists makes its own contribution. Our respect and admiration for Newton are not diminished by the achievements of Albert Einstein. We, we can admire both. The constant renewal and advancement of our scientific understanding is a central feature of the scientific enterprise. It requires a tolerant engagement with the contrarian view that is grounded in disputes arbitrated by the rules of evidence and rationality. Science demands rationality and promotes civility in discourse. Ad hominem attacks are not accepted. Science treats all humans equally. Scientists are concerned with the content of the scientific work, not with the person who produced it. Science is open to all, regardless of nationality, race, religion, or sex. These values of science are universal values worth defending, not just to promote the pursuit of science, but to produce a better and more humane society. Those are wonderful words. I think they are the altruistic goal of all scientists, and I would hope that it would mean that evangelical, Bible-believing, Christian scientists would have equal footing in the debate to consider the exchange of ideas. Today we're going to begin our uh, in-depth study of the different aspects of the creation of the world and universe as we know it. And I'm going to be breaking it up into the disciplines. I'm going to focus this morning on what we know about the origin of the universe and astronomy and uh, all of those disciplines, theoretical physics and astrophysics and all those things that have to do with that. And then in another message, we're going to consider the uh, origin of the earth, the origin of life, the question of biological evolution, and those kinds of things as we go along. And, and my goal, I trust, as we move along the path, is that you will be encouraged in your faith. Now, last time when we were together, uh, last week, I brought a message that really only had three points. You didn't know that because it took me a little over an hour to get them all out. Maybe you didn't catch them all, but I'm going to briefly summarize them for you this morning. Uh, one of the first things I wanted to underscore by way of a general introduction is that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. You're not going to find a lot of scientific laws in the Bible or physics or math. Just a simple, straightforward explanation by God of who we are, how we got here, what our problem is, where we're going, and what He has done about it through Jesus Christ. Secondly, all ideas of the origin of the universe must entail a measure of faith because none of them are scientific. In other words, science is about observation. It's about investigation. It's about recording. It's about sharing our discoveries. And 
letting other people repeat our experiments. And no one can investigate or observe the creation of the universe. Assumptions must be made. No matter what camp you come from, assumptions must be made that are taken simply on the basis of faith before the argument can even begin. Bible-believing evangelical Christians begin with the assumption that God is there and that He created it. Humanistic, secular evolutionists begin with the assumption that the present is the key to the past. But they cannot prove that any more than we can prove the existence of God. And finally, I wanted to leave you with the notion that science is a worthy endeavor. That it is not in conflict with the Scripture. All true science is in harmony with the Bible. In fact, all there is to discover is truth. Regardless of whether you're studying the Bible from a theological point of view, or whether you're studying the world or the universe or some biological specimen from a scientific point of view, when you get to the end of the trail, if you've been honest, you're always going to find God waiting to meet you. Because He made the world, and He inspired the Scripture, and both are completely in harmony with one another, and there's no fear of truth. And so, uh, we're going to begin today with that backdrop, and we're going to apply those principles very specifically to the origin of the universe. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I want to read the uh, first 19 verses. I'd like you to follow along with me, and then we're going to talk about what the Bible actually says about the creation of the universe. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse, from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seeds in them, on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let the lights in the expanse of the heavens, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights upon the earth to give light on the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Now, when we come to ask the question, what about the origin of the universe? As believers who look to the scriptures for the sense of final answers, I think that there are three basic questions that we need to ask from an objective point of view. You understand what I mean by objective? We believe God, we believe He inspired the Scriptures, but for just a moment, we're going to set that to the side, and we're going to ask ourselves the question objectively, first of all, what does the Bible actually say about the creation of the universe. What does it claim? Secondly, 
what do scientists actually know about the origin or creation of the universe? And third, are there any scientific theories that are consistent with the Bible? And in the course of asking those questions, of course, we want to ask, as we explore what scientists actually know, we want to ask, is there anything that they know that contradicts the Genesis record? And so I'm going to pose those questions this morning, and we're going to step through that. And believe it or not, I accomplished that in about 35 or 40 minutes in the first hour, despite all of these extraneous notes I have up here. Don't let that intimidate you. We're not going to read them all. What does Genesis 1 actually say about the creation of the universe? Now, as you look at the text, and I want you to go back and do that as we go along. Uh, Look at verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is obviously a statement of introduction to the rest of the chapter, but it still tells us something specific. It tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it represents it as a a single event all done together in the beginning, the start of all time, the beginning, not many beginnings, not any beginnings, but the beginning. God made the heavens and the earth. It's represented as kind of a single event in a, in a period of time. He put it all together at the same time. He made the heavens and the earth. And then as we go into verse 2, we find out that there was a point of origin of the universe that according to the Bible was geocentric. Now, I am not going back to the Middle Ages and suggesting that the sun rotates around the earth. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean is that all of the Bible, from Genesis 1, 2, and following, describes the interaction of God with this planet and the people on it. And the whole focus of Scripture and the whole focus of God is with planet Earth and with human beings. He begins there, and in the book of Revelation at the very end, he ends there with a new heavens and a new earth, And throughout all the intervening period of time, God is interested in the people who dwell on this planet. If the Bible is true and God is the God of Scripture, then He made all of creation beginning with the world. And He has given His entire attention to us on the world. And at the end of time, He will gather all of those who have come home to Him through Jesus Christ in a new world with new heavens. And as far as my understanding of Scripture goes, there isn't anyone else. That is His focus. Of course, there are angelic beings and and what have you, but we don't have any evidence that God is interested in any other worlds or or any other... uh, Aspects he is focused on planet Earth. So the the origin of the universe is geocentric, and then we're told certain things about the Earth in that first day. It says the Earth was formless and void. In other words, it was without shape and it was barren. You get the idea that there was this mass that was ill-defined. And it was empty. There was nothing living there. It was, it was void and barren. Uh, secondly, we find that it was not in the same condition it would be by the end of the creative week. It was lacking certain shapes, certain distinctives that come a little later. And then we're told the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters... And the only indication we have of the composition of the earth on day one is that it was water. It was this big mass of unshapen and empty water in the dark upon which the Spirit of God was hovering. 
So get that image in your mind, however that looks like in your mind's eye. Uh, I, I don't know how you can see in the dark, but if you can imagine something in the dark, here is this uh, churning, roiling uh, mass of water over which the Spirit of God is hovering. And then the first thing God makes after this sphere is He makes light. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, let the light separate from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night, and that was the first day. Now, when we get to the end of the first day, uh, what we have is this mass of, this watery mass and light. And we have a separation between light and darkness, and we don't have anything else. And by the way, the light precedes the sun. That doesn't come until later in the event. Then the next thing that we notice is that uh, God makes a division in the water. Look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. What is the midst? It's the middle, isn't it? In the midst, somewhere in the middle of this mass. He says, let there be an expanse. What's an expanse? Well... It's nothing, sort of. It's an expanse. But God calls it heavens. Uh, We might call it space. It's a separation of nothingness between water which is above from water which is below. So he says, God made the expanse, verse 7, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so... And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So we're 48 hours into the creative event, if these are literal 24-hour days. We're 48 hours into it, and now we have light and darkness. We have a, still a, a mass of water in the middle, and we have a mass of water around it, and we have space in between. It's just empty. It's, it's, it's void of anything. And God calls that space the heavens. And then it says, on the third day, <clears throat> I'm not going to go into this in detail this morning because it's another message on uh, biology, but on the third day, uh, God causes the dry land to appear. And interestingly enough, I guess maybe I will preview a little bit. Uh, interestingly enough, we only see one land mass and one water mass. The water he calls the seas, and the land is the land, and he makes all the vegetation to appear. All the, all the green stuff, all the plants appear uh, on this dry land. Um, those who have studied geography and the composition of the earth's crust, uh, many of them see the possibility that in ancient earth's history, all the continents were together as one land mass and, uh, and something caused them to drift or separate apart. And you can actually uh, kind of see that if you, if you look at uh, a globe of the world or a flat relief map of the world. You can kind of see how they could all be kind of folded back together. But we have God making the land mass and separating it from the water, calling the waters the seas, and causing the vegetation to appear. Now, this is day three. And on day three, in our image that's forming in our mind, I want to remind you again, we have this water out there somewhere. We have this space in the middle that are called the heavens. And now we have the earth starting to look like a planet. It has land on it. And on the land, all kinds of vegetation has sprouted. Trees and fruit trees and and all of that has has sprouted up. And then it says, on the fourth day, God said, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Now, where is that? It's between the planet and the water that's out there. There's this space in the middle. God says, let there be lights in the expanse, in the heavens. And let them be for signs and seasons, days and years, 
And let them be for light in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. And he put them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to govern the day and so forth. Now, it's interesting to me that at this point, as God creates the sun and the moon and the stars to govern the days of the earth, in my mind's eye, this is why we know now, obviously, that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, but I think this is the point at which God makes the sun and puts the earth in its orbit, because the sun now is the marker. God has already established the days, but the sun becomes the marker. And as the earth makes its rotation on its axis and travels around its orbit of the sun, we have a 24-hour day, more or less, and we have a 365-day year, more or less. Leap year, we kind of account for the difference. And that establishes the pattern of the days and nights. And God places the sun and the moon and the stars in the space that is between the water above the earth from the water that is on the earth. Now, at the end of this point, this is what we know. God started with a watery mass. He introduced light. He separated the mass. He made the heavens. He created the dry land. He planted the vegetables. <laughs> Didn't just plant them. They popped up, fully grown. Uh, he established the vegetation. And then he made the sun, moon, and stars and stuck them in the middle, in the empty spot. And he set everything in motion. Now, a scientist perhaps reading that with an already given perspective of a 14.5 billion year old universe and all of the prevailing ideas might say, that's absolutely silly. But I want to ask the question, what is it that scientists actually know about the universe? What can they say with relative confidence and not an awful lot of debate among themselves? What do they kind of agree on? There are at least four things that they have observed. First of all, they are fairly confident that the universe had a singular point of origin. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Big Bang in a moment, but that's the essence of the Big Bang. In fact, one science textbook says, imagine that at one point in time, in the beginning, sounds kind of like the Bible, <clears throat> in the beginning, all the mass of the universe was contained in one single dot about the size of the period at the end of this sentence. And for reasons unknown, it exploded. And the universe came out of it. That was one heavy period, by the way. That, that, that little dot weighed all the matter in the whole universe. And it exploded into the universe. Now, that is the assumption that it had a singular point of origin. Secondly, they are fairly confident that it is or has been expanding. Well, that only makes sense, doesn't it? If it started in one place and it went boom, you, every explosion expands, doesn't it? Doesn't it move outward? And, and the particles move outward, even the shock waves move outward. Everything starts there and goes that way. And so they're fairly confident, and they make this um, claim based on some things that they observe. And they say, we, we think that the universe is or has been expanding, sort of. There are people who actually disagree with that. Scientists who say, no, it's more of a steady state. And uh, it may appear to be that, but that's not exactly what it is. But... Most scientists agree that there's some kind of expansion going on. Secondly, thirdly, they are fairly confident that the universe is flat. Now, don't laugh. 
I, I know that makes you instantly think of the world being flat, and and then your mind goes to Christopher Columbus and the. Never mind. I'm going to stop there <laughs> before I get myself in trouble. But anyway, um, they're relatively confident that the universe is flat. Think of the explosion occurring on a tabletop, not just out there in the air. Uh, that limits it. It can't go down very much because the table limits it. Uh, your Coke bottle fizzing all over uh, tends to go sideways because it's limited. Think of the universe as being like a sheet. Not like a big round thing. I'm talking about the universe now, not the world. But a sheet, like a flat sheet. In fact, it's interesting that it says, God stretched out the heavens like a tent. And one day, He's going to roll them back up like a scroll. I've given you those verses on the back of your study guide from Isaiah and other places, but... But that imagery is of a kind of a flat universe. Scientists believe that it probably is flat. In fact, some of them begin to take it, we think, in three-dimensional space. That's about all we can manage in our minds. Um, Scientists talk about uh, fourth dimension or ten dimensions. In one article I read, even eleven dimensions, which... I'm already way lost in the dust, but but they have all of these dimensions, but they still think of the universe as being predominantly flat, and they think it's finite, that it does have an end point, that if you could travel to it, you would arrive someday at the end of the universe. What's beyond it? Nobody knows. But that's what they believe are are the facts. They have also observed that it is running down according to the law of entropy, which is essentially the second law of thermodynamics that says uh, energy is is becoming less and less usable. It exists. It it doesn't go away, but it, it loses its organization and structure, and over time, things begin to disintegrate and fall apart. And it's interesting as we observe the universe that we find supernovas and stars and things that are exploding and and, and dying. Uh, But uh, as far as I can determine from my studies, I cannot find a record of anyone seeing a star being born. The science textbooks will talk about how stars are born, And it will be a lot of pages that sound like factual data. But really, at the end of the day, it's only theory of how a star might be born because no one has seen one born. And so what we do observe is that the universe seems to be winding down, which, by the way, is also what Isaiah says, it is wearing out. Now, there are other considerations that are not so confident. Scientists believe, and I'm speaking now of, of uh, the popular scientific rhetoric, they believe that the universe is 14.5 billion years old based on the presupposition of uniformity. In other words, if the present is the key to the past, then our observations suggest to us that the universe is very, very old. Among those things is the belief that things cannot travel faster than the speed of light. And the assumption is, are, are, you, are you all with me? Okay. You just, just want to make sure you're on board. Um, the assumption is that if a star is a hundred million light years away. You don't know what light year is? It's the distance that light can travel in one year. So a star is a hundred million light years away. How long did it take the light to reach the earth? A hundred million years, right? Of course. I mean, that's and, and that's how some of these uh, interpre- interpolations are made. If a star is a hundred million light years away, it took a hundred million light years for the light to reach the earth. 
And so we have our first hundred million years in the universe, at least, and then it goes on and on. I have a question. What if, what if the star started out close to the earth and God went, what would happen to the light then? It would have been right nearby and the star would have moved faster than the speed of light, leaving its trail that we see. In other words, it doesn't have to be a hundred million years. It could have been a few seconds. God made this star and He went, threw it out there and left its light all the way to where it stopped. That's not so far-fetched because um, I looked up some articles and and there's some very interesting things out there. But one of them is um, problems with the Big Bang Theory. Uh, I found this website, and then I found another one uh, by different researchers that say the top 30 problems with the Big Bang Theory. And I started looking at these things, and remember what I said about scientists beginning with the theory of uniformity? And part of that is Einstein's theory of relativity, and part of that is the belief that things cannot travel faster than the speed of light. But... When you come to the Big Bang, here's one of the problems. It violates the first law of thermodynamics, which says you cannot create or destroy matter or energy. So automatically, coming out of the gate, the Big Bang has a problem because how do you get something from nothing? Where did the something come from? They don't know. Critics claim that the Big Bang theory suggests the universe began out of nothing. Proponents of the Big Bang Theory say that such criticism is unwarranted for two reasons. The first is that the Big Bang doesn't address the creation of the universe. Don't you find it interesting that that term is used in a scientific objection? The creation of the universe? Well, the Big Bang doesn't deal with that. It just deals with what happened after it went boom but not how that period got there with all the mass in it, all the matter. Then, the other reason is that the, listen, this is science. The laws of science break down as you approach the creation of the universe. There's no reason to believe the first law of thermodynamics would apply. In other words, when we get back there, to the beginning, we can't figure it out. But maybe all the rules don't apply. And two of the most fundamental laws in in all of physics are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And what they're saying is, when you get back to the beginning of the Big Bang, you may have to take those off the table. I tried to imagine (coughs) myself in a poker game. Uh, this is on the internet. I hope it's not going to offend you or whoever else out there. But um, and, and in my uh, imaginary game, I'm having a debate with with um, unbelieving secular humanist. And here are the rules: you bring your own deck of cards to the table, and from your whole deck, you can pick out any cards you want for your hand in in this in this poker game. You can pick any cards you want. However, we're going to take out all the uniformity cards. You can't play the uniformitarian card. We're going to take that off the table. And we're going to introduce a wild card called God. So anytime you get stuck, you can play the wild card. If you want to. You don't have to. You have it. You don't have to use it. But if you want to use it, you have the wild card called God, who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He can do anything, knows everything, and and, and can accomplish any feat. Now, make up your hand. Put it together any way you want, and let's talk about this. When you get to a certain point in the argument, all the bets are off. Even the scientists agree that uniformity may fail. But they don't know how objects can travel faster than the speed of light. 
And the answer could very well be that in the beginning, when God said, I'm going to make the sun and the moon and the stars above the earth, and he put them together, and then the next thing he did was he went, and he unfolded this big sheet called the universe. He stretched it out, and the watery mass at the outer edges went to the far reaches of the universe. So what do you find when you get to the end of the universe? Probably ice crystals, because they're on the outside. And all the stars and planets and everything that were very close by got flung to the far reaches faster than the speed of light. It didn't take 100 million years to make the trip. They just vanished and reappeared in seconds of time, 100 million years away. If you play the game like that, the Bible wins every time, by the way. Um, they are sure that uniformity applies to every stage of development, but they're stuck, and I, we've been talking about this, that things developed upward, not deteriorated downward in the evolution of the universe. Third, they are not sure if it started with a big bounce, a big bang, a new bounce, or a steady state. What do I mean by that? Well, there's an article um, in one of these magazines. I may never find it at this point. Um, there's an article in here um, where the author talks about, oh yes, it's this one, the ultimate growth spurt. And he's talking about inflation. He's not talking about economics now. He's talking about the universe being inflated right after the Big Bang occurred, and, and it uh, kind of expanded rather quickly. And he begins to try to address that, and he raises some questions about the validity of the theory of the Big Bang, and he says it wasn't a Big Bang, it was just another bounce. And what he means by that is instead of the universe going one time, it goes and it's you know, currently in one of those states, but it may go soon. And it's just bouncing back and forth like that. When they get to the end of the article, um, in, in the end, the case will be decided by the data because the scientists can't agree. This fellow wrote a research article on this concept, and some people think it's great, and some people think it's nuts. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about the scientific, theoretical, physicist community. And he says, the outcome will be a critical moment in our quest to determine how the universe came to be the way it is and what will happen in the future. Do you know what he's admitting? Our quest to determine how the universe came to be the way it is. He's admitting that... They don't know. In fact, I have article after article here, and I won't bore you with all of them. But in article after article, they come to the conclusion that they don't know. They have ideas, but none of the ideas that they have exactly fit the data. And so theoretical physicists and astrophysicists and astronomers kind of sit around like this when they're talking to each other saying, well, I wonder if it could have been this, or I wonder if it could have been that. And they try to plug their models in, and they still end up with questions. This was in Scientific American not too long ago, uh, July, in fact, its current edition. Modern astronomy paints a vivid picture of the universe having been born in a cataclysmic bang and filled with exotic stars ranging from gargantuan red supergiants that span the size of modest solar system to hyperdense white dwarf stars and black holes that are smaller than the Earth. Now listen to the sentence. These discoveries are all the more remarkable. They really are remarkable when you hear. Because astronomers infer them from the faintest glimmers of light, sometimes just a handful of photons. How many of you have a digital camera? You own a digital camera. Do you know how your digital camera works? <laughs> you hold it up and push the button, and you get a picture. Well, in order to make that picture, you don't have film in there anymore. You have a sensor, and that sensor is filled with little buckets called photosites that collect photons. 
Now, if you have a point-and-shoot digital camera, your little chip in there is about a eh, quarter-inch square. Okay, and if it's a 10 megapixel, it has 10 million little buckets on that square. Okay, and those buckets collect photons. And when you've snapped the picture and it's collected the photons from the scene, that's how you get your picture. Now, everybody understands digital cameras, right? You've all got this down. Okay, I'm trying to give you a sense of size that you can put 10 million of those little buckets on a little tiny chip in a pocket camera, and that bucket is going to be collecting photons, which are what they're talking about here. Little, can I say droplets of light? Is that okay? It's not very scientific. Because, well, I'm not even going to go there because we'd be here way into the afternoon. But those little buckets can only hold so many photons. When the bucket fills up, that's called overexposure. <laughs> your, fil- your picture is whited out. And so you can only hold so many, but even so, those little buckets will hold hundreds or thousands. Now, what we're talking about here is an astronomer taking one of those little buckets on your quarter-inch chip that's only a little bit full of a few photons and inferring the meaning of the universe from it. Do you realize how astounding the margin of error is? It's incredible. That's like trying to to mark off the distance from here to Tampa, Florida with a micrometer that only goes to one millimeter. Do you know how far off you could be by the time you got to Tampa? 1,100 miles away flipping a millimeter at a time, it's huge. But just in case you think I'm crazy uh, for bringing something like that up, you may think I'm crazy in general, but, but um, there was an interesting article, I'll find it here in a moment, there was an interesting article that talked about, um, I, I'm just going to tell you the story because I can't find it right now, it talked about uh, about 15 or so years ago, one of the uh, space shuttle missions was to use some special collectors in outer space to collect atoms from solar wind. And, and they were looking for isotopes that they could measure. And um, the shuttle comes back, it lands in Utah, it had a hard landing, and all the little collector plates broke. That was really a bad day for the people that were going to do the investigation because they spent the last 15 years trying to put the puzzle back together and interpret the data. But they've finally done it. And in doing so, they have finally been able to actually measure some real data about isotopes from outer space. And when they got that all done, they came to an interesting conclusion. This was reported in Science Magazine this month, Science Journal this month. The conclusion they came to was that the actual measured data was vastly different from the previous assumed conclusions inferred by studying it from the Earth. So so here they are acknowledging that what they could actually collect and measure when they finally put it all back together was a different set of data with a different understanding than what they were able to piece together just standing on planet Earth looking up and trying to figure it out. My point in all of that is, is that by the time you come to the end of the day, there is presently no agreement among scientists as to how the universe began. No one really knows. What they do know is that it had a singular point of origin. It has been or is expanding. It's probably flat. It probably has an end point, And it's running down. 
Now, the interesting thing about that is that exactly coincides with Scripture, which says that the universe is finite, that it's bounded by the waters which were above the heavens, somewhere out there, that it could be flat. We don't have that from Genesis. But we do know that God stretched it out and he's going to roll it up. So that kind of sounds sort of flat to me. And we do know that it's running down. As Isaiah says, it's wearing out. So far, there's no disagreement with what scientists are most confident about. But the final question is, is there any theoretical model by a credible theoretical physicist that fits the Scripture in a literal 24-hour, six-day creation week. And it just so happens that there is two scientists by the name of Russell Humphreys, Ph.D., and Larry Vardaman, Ph.D. And Mr. Humphreys, Dr. Humphreys, has spent his whole life working on this model, taking into account as much validity as Newtonian physics allows as far as it goes, and then picking up with Einstein and his theory of relativity and gravity, Humphreys has contemplated the universe and come up with a mathematical model that talks about that early part of Genesis where this massive water mass was separated and then expanded and stretched out. And he talks about the stars. He calls it anachronistic in his article, but it means timeless. How the stars as they were pulled away from the center, went through a timeless moment where they literally jumped almost eons of time in the blink of an eye, he's put together a mathematical model that no one has been able to seriously contradict. Can't prove it any more than anybody else can prove anything else. But he has gone on record with a mathematical theoretical model that fits the account of Genesis and satisfies the requirements of science and physics as we know it in a way that gives credibility to the Genesis record. I go back to the quotation that I read you at the very beginning. Oh, that scientists really would practice what they preach and let everyone come to the table and have an equal seat at the table. Let's truly, with open minds, put the data out there, and let's talk about it. Because you recall last week I said to you, at the end of the day, what you come out with, to a certain extent, depends on your presuppositions. And if you begin with God and the trustworthiness of Genesis, there is adequate data to support the book of Genesis. If you begin without God and you presume uniformity, you can make a lot of the data fit that. But you are still left with unanswerable questions. And when you boil it down, I have a whole slew of relatively recent magazines and journal articles in Science and Scientific American and Astronomy and whatnot that basically come to the same final paragraph. This is a great idea, but we really don't know. We're still checking. So how does that affect you and me? Well, first of all, you're not going to go out from here and take what I've said and convince your unbelieving neighbor... That the universe was made in six days about 6,000 years ago. You're not going to be able to use this to convince the unbeliever that God created the universe the way he said he did. But what I do want you to take away from here is that if you look at the data the way it is and the scientific investigation, the true investigation of what exists, there is nothing credible to discredit the Bible. And there is nothing provable in anyone's camp. I would not begin to walk into a room of theoretical physicists and attempt to engage them in debate on their level. You know why? Because I would be really stupid. 
I can barely do higher level algebra. It would be really silly for me to take on advanced physics beyond, I think, sometimes their comprehension. I wouldn't begin to do that. But here's what I know from their summary statements. When they write their conclusions in ways the rest of us can understand, what they come to the conclusion of is, this is another good idea. We don't know the solution, finally. We don't have the ultimate answers. And I can tell you with assurance this morning that you can go out of this room and state that the Bible is absolutely, literally true and not be afraid that someone's going to come out of the corner with a hidden truth that undermines that statement. Because currently there is no absolute known that undermines the biblical record. And our confidence in our God basically says there never will be. Because if the investigator is honest, at the end of the day, they're going to find God and realize that he was there all along. I love the testimony of Dr. Werner von Braun, the German um, rocket scientist who was challenged persistently to read the scriptures and when he finally read the Bible beginning in Genesis uh, the story is by the time he came to the gospel of John he had come to faith in Jesus Christ and his testimony was knowing all that I know having read the scripture it's the only explanation I've ever read that truly makes sense and friends that's the truth. God is focused on us. He made us. His energy is devoted toward us. He sent His Son to this planet to redeem us. And one day when it's all said and done, He's going to invite us to live with Him, those who know Him, in a new heaven and a new earth. And we can rest assured that nothing is going to change that reality. Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. I pray that as we study these different aspects of what your word does tell us and what we can see in front of our eyes, that there is always going to be congruence when we get it right. That nature and the Bible speaks the same language, and it's your language, O oh God. We worship you and praise you. Creator God of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.